theyeshiva.net. Thank you so, so much, Rabbi Isaac. And thank you so, so much to the amazing community, the Jewish community of Mexico City, for this uh, wonderful, wonderful invitation. As I was telling Rabbi Isaac a few hours ago, my trip to your community was, I think, the second to my last trip before the outbreak of this uh, pandemic of the coronavirus. And uh, I'm glad that it was the last trip or one of the last trips, because now that I have been quarantined in my home for quite a while together with the rest of you and and most of the world, uh, the flavor of my visit in your community still lingers in my mouth. We all know that there's a halacha, there's a Jewish law by Pesach, that ain't maftir in achira Pesach hafikoyman. That once you eat the afikoman, the matzah at the end of the seder, before we bench, after that you don't eat because you want that the, the flavor of the matzah of the afikoman should linger in your mouth because it's a commemoration for the carbon Pesach, for the Passover offering that we used to eat in the time of the Beisamikta. So they didn't want that any flavor should replace that flavor. So my last flavor of a journey of lectures was in your community and the hospitality and the warmth and the love and the affection and the sense of of camaraderie and brotherhood and sisterhood and the real sense of community and togetherness that I experienced in Mexico City was so extraordinary and really transformative. I thought we'll be there for an hour or two hours, and you remember many of you, we remained till uh, close to dawn, uh, dancing and singing and schmoozing and fabringing and sharing and teaching and learning from each other. So I am so glad to be back with this great community of Mexico City, and I'm sorry that it's under these circumstances, uh, but this is the miracle of technology that we could share and learn and connect together through our Zoom chat. And I guess, as I was telling the teenagers last Thursday during our program, the reason Hashem created the Internet the reason Hashem created the technology that allows us to communicate on this level is it says in Pirkei Avot, the end of ethics of the fathers, whatever Hashem created, he created for his honor. So this tremendous power that the internet provides, this extraordinary technological development that we could communicate each other to each other with such ease, why was it created? It was created for this. It was created that Torah should be able to saturate and fill the entire world. The prophet says when Mashiach comes, The world will be filled with divine awareness like water covers the sea. So this is our opportunity today to prepare such a world, to usher in such a world where the whole world is filled with divine consciousness, with godly awareness like water covers the sea. So I'm grateful for this opportunity. I want to thank the hundreds and hundreds of people who are joining us here on our Zoom chat from Mexico City. And in your graciousness, you opened it up to the whole world. So there are many thousands more who are joining us literally the world over via the yeshiva.net. And I want to welcome all of you, wherever you may be, I know we have people literally from all over the world, from the United States of America and from other countries, even though the hour is quite late. But uh, we have people from Israel who, I guess, are up very late. And, of course, Australia. 
So I want to thank you wherever you are in the world, South Africa, Australia, Europe, Asia, the United States, of course, Eretz Yisrael, and thank again our hosts and our uh, those who invited us in Mexico City. Thank you, thank you. I hope we have a meaningful and inspiring and uh, impactful evening together. I am going to share some thoughts, ideas, and feelings. And then afterwards, as Rabbi Isaac said, we'll open it up to questions. You can uh, write, if you're on the Zoom chat from Mexico City, you can write your question in English on the chat. I will go through the questions. Be'ezer Hashem. If you want to write it in uh, Spanish, you can write it in Spanish. And Rabbi Isaac will translate. If you want to ask your questions from the yeshiva.net, you can also do it on that page. If you go to the yeshiva.net and you see the lecture to Mexico City, you can click on it and you will see the opportunity to ask a question or leave a comment. And we shall, but Ezer Hashem, address as many questions as we can. Now, our topic, our topic today is, and this is how they, let me read it, how it was, uh, it was written in uh, Spanish. So, I guess a more or less accurate translation would be dealing with our relationships during this corona situation. We are all home. <laughs> we are all in the same boat. Naturally, a lot of issues and situations come up. How do we deal with the stress on relationships during the coronavirus? And we're referring, of course, to marriages, marriages between spouses, the stress on relationships and marriages, and also all the relationships in the home, primarily, of course, between parents and children, children and parents. We are all, on one way or another, homeschooling our children, even though school continues, thank God, through Zoom or through telephone conferences or whatever, the technology that is being used by that particular school. But the children are all home. They're home from morning to night, including night as well. So there are new dynamics that we were not dealing with Two months ago, we were not dealing with two years ago, both in terms of marriages and our relationships with our children. What is the best way to handle it? How should can we enhance it? How can we deal with the challenges and problems? And how can we really make it a special time of growth and much more happiness? So this is the is- these are some of the issues that we're going to address. Thank you. So, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Almond, almond milk. I just asked my son to uh, make me <laughs> make me a coffee, please. This was a, a very long day. And uh, so I just asked him for a coffee. You'll excuse me. Let's, let's begin. This coronavirus, COVID-19 as it's called, is a challenge which many of us have not faced during our lifetime. An invisible enemy, the size of 125 nanometers, has brought humanity to its knees. There is not a single person or industry or sector that has not been impacted, transformed, and turned upside down as a result of this invisible virus. Fascinating. Not a single bullet was shot. No terrorist attack. No war. No nuclear attack. No violence. 
an invisible enemy which begins in Wuhan, China, changes the world and changes the world within a few days or a few weeks to the point that great industries, structures of power, of commerce, of finance, of entertainment, of the arts, of academia, of literally every industry and every sector has been not just affected, but affected at its core and transformed. In our community, we don't go to shul. Our schools have been closed. We are all quarantined at home. And this is the first time that I can remember that the whole world is talking about one topic constantly. There's one thing in our mind 24 hours a day. And suddenly we discover our sheer humanity. Whether you live in China or you live in Australia, whether you live in South Africa or you live in Brazil, from Mexico City to Alaska, from Hawaii to Peru, from Tokyo to Moscow, and from Jerusalem to New York and Los Angeles. There's one thing on our mind, our sheer humanity, and all of us being confronted by this coronavirus, which does not discriminate does not discriminate between nations and between tribes, between religions and between faiths, between colors and between races. It doesn't ask questions. It travels with tremendous swiftness and is contagious in ways that we did not imagine initially and is so dangerous for a significant percentage of our people and of humanity. This is an unprecedented event in our lifetime, in our history. And this certainly will go down into the history books. And in this case, it's not a cliche. Because all of you will yet talk about this for many years, even after the madness is over. We will be able to look at history and we will always talk about pre-corona and after corona. This happened before corona, this happened after corona. And it's a difficult time. This is challenging, and it's challenging in a very serious way. And do not underestimate its impact literally on every level. Many of us, certainly in my community, and many, many more communities have lost loved ones. We have lost relatives, close friends, teachers, mentors, in some communities, an older generation was wiped off, was wiped away, their souls taken back to heaven. So many people that we know have fallen ill and are struggling in their illness. May God bring a refuah shlema, refuah kreva, a complete and speedy recovery for all those who need it and give solace and comfort to all those who are deeply in grief and in mourning over the loss of loved ones. This is a difficult time. There are many wounds. There's a lot of pain. There is profound tragedy in so many, so many communities. I'm speaking here from Muncie, New York. New York was hit very, very bad. And so many families shaken and so many lives affected in one way or another, but everybody affected. We are the Jewish people. If there's one thing that defines the Jewish people, is resilience. They say that the Chinese lasted 5,000 years because the same character 
that they have for crisis is the character they have for the idea of opportunity. Intimating the idea that every crisis is also the beginning of an opportunity. That's true. Thank you. In the Jewish language, though, it's even more significant. Because we have a word called mashber. What is a mashber? Mashber means a breakdown. From the word shvira, something that's shattered, broken, fragmented. Lishbor, shavur, shvarim. But you know what else mashber means in Hebrew? When we describe a woman sitting on a birthing stool, we say, Yoshevet al-hamashber, the birthing stool. Women would sit on a rack that was like a birthing stool to give birth. It's called a mashber. Because in the Jewish imagination, in the Jewish perspective, every broken moment, every breakdown is also the springboard, the catalyst for a new birth. It's a birthing stool. Now, birthing stools are not places that are pain-free. Giving birth has agony and suffering and a lot of pain and often many sobs. But the mother knows that this is not the end. This is a new beginning. It's a mashber. There's a new birth. And I say to you, my dearest friends, brothers and sisters in Mexico, and brothers and sisters the world over, whoever is tuned in presently, whoever is going to watch or listen later, this is a time of a mashber. It's a time of shvira. So many lives have been shattered and we cry for every loss and we fight for every life and we pray for every person who needs our prayers. But woe unto us if we allow this moment of crisis just to pass and we just go back to normal life and we just hope Soon the virus will be curbed, it'll be under control, we'll flatten the curve, and I'll be able to go back to work, you'll be able to go back to work, the kids will go back to school, we'll go back to shul, we'll go shopping, we'll mingle once again, we'll go to bar mitzvahs, we'll go to weddings, and life will come back to normal. Woe unto us if that is our wish. That should not be our wish. After going through such a transformative crisis, what we need to discover in ourselves are the resources to open ourselves up to a whole new type of beginning, to a new consciousness. You know, there was a concept that many great Jews called for a moment of silence in public schools. One of the great crises here in America and many other places is the violence in public schools that was unprecedented. Recent years, so much violence in public schools with shootings and deaths and bloodshed. Incredible. And one of the great suggestions was that a, a school should have a moment of silence. In the beginning, there should be a moment of silence when students reflect on their values and their purpose of life to create a consciousness of values in our public education. So it shouldn't just be information, but there should always be, there should also be a focus on responsibility, on morality, on ethics, on decency, on kindness, on compassion. Well, today the entire universe is experiencing a moment of silence. Less cars on the street, 
The malls are closed. The stadiums are closed. The theaters are closed. The bars are closed. The clubs are closed. Public places, parks are closed. Lahavdil, schools and shuls, and not just by the Jewish people, but among all nations. The world is experiencing a moment of silence. We have retreated back into our homes. We are quarantined. It's difficult. It's challenging. Sometimes children are climbing on the walls. There's fighting. There's chaos. People are stressed. People are afraid. There is hysteria. There's panic. There's fear. These are all normal emotions. But I say to you, as a friend to friend, as a brother to brother, and as a brother to sisters, at such a moment, don't surrender to pettiness and mediocrity. Don't surrender to fear, panic, and hysteria. To quote Thomas Paine, these are times that try men's souls. This is not a time to be a victim. This is a time to be a leader. This is a time when you must become stronger than ever. These are challenging times that are designated to bring out your innermost resources, your innermost focus, your innermost fortitude, resolve, resilience, determination, and most importantly, courage, courage, as they say in Yiddish. This is a time for courage. This is a time for rediscovery. It's a time of silence that allows us to pause. And whenever you have a pause, you can emerge from the pause with a new perspective, with a new sense of vigor, with a new set of priorities. I once read there was a great, great pianist, a world-renowned pianist, and a colleague of his who wasn't so successful asked him, what sets you apart? What made you so successful? I also play, I also play the piano. I also read notes brilliantly. Why the difference in quality between you as a pianist and me? The man looked at him and said, it's the pauses. It's the pauses in between the notes. And I always understood that as a metaphor for Shabbos. Shabbos is the pause. And in a way now, there's a Shabbos quality to the whole week. We were forced to pause. Everybody, in one way or another, everybody had to slow down. Everybody has to stay home. Everybody is retreating. Naturally, it brings out new challenges that we never had to dealt with because we were on the run. You didn't like it in the house, you ran away to work. <laughs> you didn't like coming back to your house, you stayed longer at work. Or you found a reason to go on a business trip. Today, we are forced and challenged and stimulated to deal with our stuff, to deal with what's going on at our home. But this is a tremendous opportunity to pause, to go back to our core, and to reemerge from this crisis as literally new people. Welcoming a new world, welcoming a new language, thinking about life in a new way. And I know I may sound very dramatic, but are these not dramatic times? The world has changed. The question is, are we ready to change? And one of the greatest areas where we can do this is in our relationships with our families. Let's begin with our marriages. It's not a secret that so many marriages were stressful before the coronavirus. Many people have been experiencing miserable marriages. Divorce has gone up. Even people who remain married, a lot of fighting, a lot of mistrust, a lot of challenges, and a lot of issues. This is the time 
to go back to the beginning, press restart and get married again. I don't mean literally to get married again and renew your vows under a chuppah, but I mean conceptually to start over from the beginning. I encourage all of you, and I'm going to give a few practical tips how to deal with your marriage during this time. Now, of course, these are general concepts. They don't apply to every situation. Every marriage is different. Every marriage is individualistic. You have to know what's going on in your life. What problems are you dealing with in a good day? But the issue is whatever you were dealing with is now emerging in a more powerful way, in a more potent way, because everybody is spending much more time with each other. So here are a few tips. Number one, it is critical every single day to spend time with your spouse. This was before coronavirus too, but now especially. I don't know where everybody lives and if you're allowed to walk outside, but if you're allowed to take a walk, according to the guidelines of the health officials, it is very, very important every single day to take a walk, whether it's a half an hour, whether it's 45 minutes, whether it's an hour, and no phones. If you need to take a phone, the phone should be put away. (laughs) You don't walk around with phones, texting and emailing. I'm talking about a real walk Or if you can't take a walk outside, you can go to the porch or you could sit at home. Whatever your circumstances allow, you must follow the guidelines of health officials because this is the mitzvah of the hour to protect human life. And not like those people who mock it and don't believe in quarantine. I can't understand them. For Jews, we are the people who introduced the concept of protecting human life, saving every possible life, and doing whatever we can to save a life. But under the guidelines of the health officials, it's extremely important. Take a walk and schmooze, chat. Remember, you and your spouse are both in this together, but you're not experiencing it the same way. Men experience the coronavirus in their way. Women experience it in their way. Every individual couple has their own experiences. And it's just important to talk to each other, to listen to each other, to laugh together, to schmooze together, to date together, to get to know each other and do a lot of listening and be curious. Don't impose your opinions and perspectives and fears and concerns on your spouse. She may be experiencing different emotions. You may be experiencing different emotions. He or she, whoever I'm talking to, I'm talking to both. Respect it. Allow the other person to share, but it's so important to bond, to listen to each other, to connect. This is also a time you can work through differences. We all have our own demons. We all have our own skeletons. We all have our own ghosts. We have our issues. Sometimes there is a very extreme situation where there's very deep trauma or powerful personality disorder or mental illness. And these are unique categories where you may need serious help from the outside. But this is generally a time when we should address our differences in a calm way, not in a judgmental way. Understand that this is a unique opportunity to press restart on our marriages. You know how when a computer gets stuck and it's not moving, you press control, alt, delete, and you log out and you restart. We were all given an opportunity to restart. Restart in our own life. Get to learn yourself better. Get to learn your spouse. Discover more of your spouse. Ask yourself, what are your real priorities in life? Where do you want to spend most of your time? Have you been squandering time on things that really were not very necessary and immaterial? 
Has much of your life been pursuing things just to compensate for voids that you never dealt with, to distract yourself from pain that you don't want to feel? Can you really embrace your truest self, your ultimate vulnerability, your nakedness, and really connect to that and surrender and start over again? In times of uncertainty, we are given an incredible opportunity to surrender into the loving embrace of God, not knowing what tomorrow will bring. For some of us, it creates crisis. And for some of us, it creates an opportunity to surrender in the loving embrace of Hashem and declare those words of David HaMelech. Wherever I walk, I am not afraid because you are with me. And to be able to shed all of our cover-ups, all of our masks, our falsehood, our fakeness, our lies, and emerge as authentic people. How beautiful will that be when we emerge from this much more honest much more real, much more pure, much more authentic. Not because we don't have anything to deal with and not because we don't have selfishness and greed and evil and negativity and toxicity. Of course we have it. But this gives us an opportunity to put in, put it in its place, to be able to identify my traumas, to be able to identify my insecurities and to be able to let it be, but not allow it to take over my life. And the same is true in our marriages, to be able to go to a much deeper place, to rediscover our spouses, to rediscover our relationships. So I say to you, spend this time talking, listening, connecting, and bonding. And here is an important rule. You don't have to agree with your spouse, but you have to be able to trust your spouse. We don't have to agree with each other, but we have to be able to lean on each other. I have to know that you got my back a thousand percent, and you need to know that I got your back a thousand percent. So that even if we disagree with each other, we could disagree with each other. But for that, I must be able to know for sure that I can trust you, and you have to know for sure that you can trust me. And then the disagreements become actually a source of humor or a source of conversation or an intriguing, it's intriguing and actually funny and charming. There are some things we will always disagree on. The Mishnah in Pirkei Avot says, <laughs> An argument for the sake of heaven endures. An argument not for the sake of heaven doesn't endure. And one of the charming interpretations I once heard from a marriage therapist is, an argument that's not for the sake of heaven doesn't endure because we have to figure out who's right. And we fight all day. I'm right. You're right. He's right. She's right. No, you're wrong. You're wrong. But an argument for the sake of heaven, meaning an argument where we know that we're both part of heaven. And for me to be right, I don't need you to be wrong. And for you to be right, you don't need me to be wrong. The machlaikas can endure. The, the can endure. The disagreement can endure. We can disagree and still have fun with each other. But there's one condition. The condition is that I know that you're not disagreeing with me because you want to disagree with me. And I know that when you're sharing with me your opinion, it's not an insult to me. Sometimes what happens is when a spouse shares with another spouse, their deep emotions, their deep frustration or pain or agony, or they may criticize something in the other spouse. So the worst thing for the other spouse is to take it as you don't care about me. 
You don't trust me. You don't like me. You're, deme- you're demonizing me. You're denigrating me. If that's the case, you have to talk about that because very often that's not the case. We have to learn that I can disagree with you, but I still have your back and you can disagree with me and you have my back. So there is complete trust. There is complete camaraderie. And I also have to learn that your emotions may be very different than my emotions and your perspectives may be very different than my perspectives. And for me to listen to your perspective comes from when a place of wholesomeness, meaning when I could be internally wholesome, then I can listen to your perspective without judging it and without thinking that you're judging me. So I want to ask all the couples listening to me to try to do this exercise. And if the, if the, really this is not a challenge for you, that's awesome. But I know that sometimes or pretty often this is a challenge. And that is the next time your wife or your husband says something, makes a comment about a belief that you have or a behavior that you have or a habit that you have. And that must be happening a lot now when you see each other so often. You may hear a voice that right away becomes judgmental and critical. Oh, here he goes again. Here she goes again. But that's the voice coming from the Yetzirah. That's the voice coming from your animalistic, small, petty self. Can you watch this voice and then try to observe it and introduce another voice? And the other voice is really saying, no, he has my back. He loves me. She loves me. I trust her. She trusts me. He trusts me. I trust him. He trusts me. We trust each other. She's just sharing or he's just sharing their soul, their perspective, their emotion. It's not an attack. You don't have to take it personal. You don't have to get defensive. You don't have to attack back. Some of us who have been traumatized from youth are always in that state of fight or flight. Every comment is like another attack. And now I have to go back. It's like a wrestling match. It's like a boxing match. But that's living in a place of exile and pettiness and galut and fear and insecurity. It's like you're stuck and paralyzed. Can you watch it? You can't get rid of it, but can you watch it? Can you watch it from a distant distance and extricate yourself from it? Extricate your mind from it. Don't let it define you. You define it. And that makes all the difference because then you could respond to your wife or respond to your husband from a more wholesome place from a more splendid, confident, happy, divine, godly, infinite internal space. And when you can respond from that space, everything changes. Because then instead of demonizing the person and right away getting negative, you can actually hear it. Watch the thoughts that are coming from your pettiness and what they're doing to you and choose to respond from a place of inner wholesomeness, of inner sacredness, of a place of inner value. And your inner value is you want to be close to this person, don't you? You want to grow old together with God's help. You want to raise a beautiful family together. You want to live a long and happy and harmonious life together. And if that's the case, you could respond from that place. This is my spouse. We are here for each other. Let me take that comment and not take it wrongly and not internalize it as a criticism, as an attack. Let me just see it as another perspective, somebody expressing their feeling. And therefore, I could remain in the relationship and remain connected throughout all of this. Which now brings us to another very important practical idea. 
This is a story about the famous Rosh Hashiva of Torah Vadas, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, Zechet Tzadik Levrocha. He actually lived in Munsi for many years and then ultimately moved to New York. He lived in Tranto, Trant- Munsi. He grew up in, he was a Talmud in the yeshiva of Slabotka. Slabotka is a city in Lithuania and there was the famed yeshiva of Slabotka with the altar of Slabotka, Finkel Zechreina Levrocha, Zechet Tzadik Levrocha. And Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky came from a Lithuanian, a Litvish town, learned in Slabotka, which was a very famous Lithuanian yeshiva, and remained one of the Litvish Gdoyle Adar, one of the great sages of the last generation of the Lithuanian community, the Lithuanian Gdoyle. And a fascinating thing happened. I once read this about him. And that is Rabbi Yaakov remarried. He had a second marriage. And one of his grandchildren came to him for Shabbos. And he sees that Rabbi Yaakov makes Kiddush. And after Kiddush, Shabbos afternoon, Shabbos morning, after most of he makes Kiddush. And after Kiddush, he goes and he has some azoinus, like some cake, a little schnapps, a little wine, a little chayim, I don't know, some herring, some azoinus, which he never saw by his grandfather. This is not usually what at least many of the Litvisha, the Lithuanian Jews do. This is a tradition by many of the Hasidic communities, not all of them, but many Hasidic communities have this custom. They make Kiddush and wine. And then they eat like they have a little kiddush. You eat something and then you go wash. So he asked Rabbi Yaakov, Zayda, since when did you adopt this Hasidish custom? You're not, you're not a Hasid, you're a Litvak. You're a real Litvak, you're a Lithuanian Jew. And he said something so moving. He said that his wife, his second wife, in her first marriage, this was the custom of her husband. That Shabbos morning he made Kiddush and he had the, on the wine and then he had a little, you know, snack, what we call a Kiddush, and then he went to wash. And he knew that if he does not do this for his wife, something will be missing from the Shabbos experience because this is her minig. And out of respect, he decided to adopt this Hasidic custom and do it this way, make Kiddush and then eat some cake before going to wash. Interesting, just me in and in parentheses. He had another interesting Hasidic custom that he didn't eat gebrachts, which means he wouldn't make his matzah wet on Pesach, which, as you know, is a stringency by Hasidim, but most of the Litvisha communities did not accept this stringency. And I was wondering about this, and I once heard, I think, from a family member or a student, or maybe I read it somewhere, a fascinating reason for this. When he was in Slabotka Yeshiva, you know, they were very poor, and they used to eat for Shabbos and other times. It was called teg. You would eat by different families. And he once came to a particular, a particular uh, home, and he was there for the seder. He was there for the seder. He couldn't make it home for seder. I guess he didn't have the money or the means, so he was there at that home for the seder. And for some reason, he doubted something about the kashras, about the kosher in the home. But he was already there at the meal. <laughs> so what does he do? They serve the soup. And he was doubtful about, I guess it was chicken soup, maybe the chicken. He was doubtful about the kashras. And they had knedlach, which of course is made from matzo, matzo balls. You take flour, you take matzah, and you, uh, you crumble the matzah, and you knead it together with, with, uh, with water, and you make matzo balls, whatever else you put in there, and you make matzo balls, knedlach. The chassidim only do it achor and shal pesach, the last night of pesach, but not the first seven days of pesach. So he gets the soup, and he doesn't want to say that he's downing the kashra. So you know what he said? He came up with something. He said he has a minute that he doesn't need gebrachts. 
and he has a meaning he doesn't need gebrok. So therefore, he can't eat the soup. So they understood, okay, you have a custom not to eat gebrok. They understood, and they didn't give him the soup. And because he told them that he has a custom not to eat gebrok, so therefore, he never ate gebrok for the rest of his life, not to utter a lie. What I want to bring out from the first story, the second story is also a powerful lesson about the need to be honest and truthful. What I want to bring out from the first story is a very powerful idea. And that is we each have to cut each other slack right now. It's very, very important. There's enough stress in the house. Speak with respect to your wife. Speak with respect to your husband. There may be issues. We may be angry. We may be very upset. We may feel obsessive. We may feel overwhelmed. These are normal emotions. Find a way to express them. But it's very, very important to cut each other slack. This is a time to be extra kind, extra sensitive, extra loving, extra warm, extra affectionate. And even if you have a sacred tradition that you right away drink wine and you go wash right away to have the meal of Shabbos and there's no point to have cake in the middle. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky said, but this was my wife's Shabbos. And I have to respect the way she experiences Shabbos. And this is so true about everything in life. You don't have to agree with the other person, but respect where they're coming from. Listen to where they're coming from. Cut them a little slack, especially during this time. And very, very important to remember something. And that is people feel a lack of stability now. People are worried. They're worried about their future. They're worried about their businesses. They're worried about economics. They're worried about a lot of other things. There are reasons to be stressed out. People are in pain. People have lost loved ones. During such a time when people are stressed out, realize that they sometimes react from a stressed place and we have to be able to trust that we could speak about it to our spouse. Don't repress it. Don't hide it. And don't get angry and run away. Communicate what is going on in your life with your spouse. That's why I say every day, have conversations, communicate. How was your day? How are you feeling? What are you experiencing with the children? This is also a time when we are all given special time with our children. Let's face it. Till this coronavirus, a lot of children are away in school. Even if they live at home, they're away much of the day and they come home late at night. It's a different reality now. This is a gift. I know it could be stressful, but it's a gift. It's a gift to spend time with each of your children, to make sure there's extra family time. Now, I know Mexico City, this is in a good day, a very sacred tradition. Not like us New Yorkers. Us New Yorkers, if you get a family together on Shabbos, it's already a big miracle. When I came to Mexico City, I remember I landed and they told me, Isaac said, we're going for lunch somewhere to have a little lunch. And I came in and I saw half the community there. Everybody takes off. A few hours by day, a few hours at night. I know that the family values are very, very powerful, and that's amazing. And now we have to strengthen it, even in Mexico City and certainly around the world. This is a special time. Listen to your children, fabreng with them, dance with them, have fun with them, play games with them, play sports with them, learn with them, daven with them. And this is, I should say, a very special time for davening and learning. We love shul. We love community. But sometimes we have to learn to daven on our own. And it's a special time because you can daven and focus on a few words. I would suggest that everybody, every day you focus on one paragraph and you read a translation of it so that you understand it, so that your davening is more sincere, more pnimiusdik, more genuine, more authentic.
You could read books that you never had time to read. You could learn Sfarim that you never had time. You could bond with your children in very special ways. Listen to them. So don't forfeit this opportunity. Another very important principle. Don't expect everything to be perfect in the house. Your children are also going through a lot of experiences. They're going through ups and downs. There's a lot of fluctuations and a lot of moods. Teenagers in a good day don't have it easy, you know? Their bodies are changing and they go through different moods and different ups and downs. You have to know not to sweat the small stuff. Not everything is a big story. Not everything is a dramatic picture. Kids react in different ways. Kids fight with each other. Kids say sometimes things. It's important to have a home that is a place where children can feel safe. That means it's important that the home has structure, the home has discipline, the home has respect. Just like a home, which is a boot camp, where you rule with an iron fist, it's not a good home, it can create trauma for children. Children need love and excitement and fun and relaxation. The opposite is also true. A home where there's no discipline, where there's no expectations where it's a free-for-all, can also create trauma for children. Because what happens then is the children don't feel that they are valuable. They don't feel they're important. They don't feel their parents are really involved in their lives. So it's very, very important balance between a home that's open and free and loving and exciting and fun and enjoyable, but also a home where there is consistency, where there is structure, where there is discipline, where there's accountability, where there's conversation, but without anger, without it coming from your own insecurity. Don't lash out at your children because you're having a hard day. The structure in the house must come from a place of love, from a place of wholesomeness, from a place of authenticity. This is a great time to have conversations with your children, different ages, age-appropriate, Talk to them, and more importantly, listen to them. It's extremely important that the technology in your home that you're using has the appropriate filters, or that somehow you're monitoring, you're overseeing what is happening, because as children are growing up, there are pop-ups, and even if it's unintentional, you do not want your child by mistake to encounter websites that can drag them down into a place that can lead to disastrous results and even addiction. It's also important that there's times in the home where there's no screens, no phones and no screens. Yes, we are all using screens now in one way or another, but it's important that a few hours there's no screens and no telephones because it becomes addictive. It's not good for the brain. We use it much of the day. But there's dinner time, there's lunch time, there's breakfast time, there's davening time, there's learning one-on-one with books, not through technology. Very important not to use screens, then people have to bond with each other. We have to talk to each other, we have to enjoy each other, and we have to listen to each other. I also want to share something else with you, my dearest friends. And here I'm going to share a story. And... I find it to be a very, it's a simple story, but it's a very deep story. It's a story about the Balatanya, and the story comes with a little history. The year is 1812. Napoleon Bonaparte, the emperor of France, decides it's not enough that he rules Europe. He needs to rule Russia too. He had an appetite to rule the whole world, and Russia remained, you know, the last standing fortress, he was going to bring the czar to his knees. 
And in June 1812, Yudbeis Tammuz, Tofkuf, Ayin Beis, I think it was, Napoleon's army, 600,000 men, the greatest army that ever existed and was mobilized, best soldiers from all over Europe, <clears throat> entered into Kovne, Vilna, and went to attack Russia. The Balatanya, the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, lived, as I just said, in a city called Liadi, L-I-A-D-I, Lamed Yud, Aleph, Dalad Yud, Liadi, it's still a little town you can visit it, although there's nothing Jewish there. The, the Germans uh, killed out everything and destroyed everything when they entered in the early 1940s with the Einsatzgruppe, Siemachshemam. And the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shnei Zalman, the Balatanya, lived in Liadi, and he knew that Napoleon will soon enter his city. And he refused to be under Napoleon's rule, even for a moment, so before Rosh Hashanah, a few days, I think it was Erev Rosh Chodesh Elul, right before Elul, he took his family and he escaped from Liadi. And they escaped deep into Russia. They went east towards the direction of Moscow. And then they went down south to southern eastern Ukraine. And there the Rebbe fell ill from one of the coldest winters in Russian history, the end December 1812. And he passed away in a little town called Piena. And he's buried in Hadich near Paltava, where he passed away. Chavdala Tevis Tovkov Ayin Gimel, the 24th, 24th of Tevis Tovkov Ayin Gimel, the end of 1812, December 1812. When the Rebbe left Liadi, he left himself, himself, his wife, children, grandchildren, and all of their families, and many of the close Hasidim who lived there. So they went with 60 wagons. And because he was very helpful to the Tsar in his war against Napoleon, which is a whole separate story, the Russian, the Tsar's army sent guards, troops from the army, from the Tsar's army to protect the Balatanya in this escape. It's an incredible story, the whole escape, but I want to share one detail of the story that has to do with marriage. There was a wealthy Chabad Chassid of the Balatanya, his name was Reb Yitzchak Zelver. And Reb Yitzchak Zelver was a very affluent Jew, and he sponsored the trip. He basically paid for the expenses of the Balhatanya traveling in 60 wagons with the family. They needed food. They had to remain there. They stopped in different cities. <clears throat> they took hotels or wherever they stayed. He paid for everything. He came with a box, a chest, filled with gold and silver coins. He was a very affluent Jew, very, very close to the Rebbe, a close disciple. He paid the expenses. The Balatanya once arrived in a particular city during this escape, before Shabbos, and they spent Shabbos there. And they stayed in a hotel or a motel. Rabbi Yitzchak Zelver traveled with his wife, and they also stayed. They also stayed in the hotel. They had a room, and the room had... A porch, like a balcony. You went out, and the balcony had a uh, a gate that blocked and protected nobody to fall off from the balcony because they were on the second floor of the hotel. As they were sitting there by the balcony, they were sitting and schmoozing. Rabbi Yitzchak's wife started to complain. And she said, I really don't understand you. Why in your right mind did you accept upon yourself such a financial yoke 
to sponsor this whole thing. Mainly you want to give money to the Rebbe, to the Balatanya, okay. You want to, you want to sponsor him. But it's not just him. You know how it is. 60 families you're bringing and it's all on you. Come on. This is not fear. You're being used and soon everything will be depleted. We will have nothing left for ourselves. And as a good Jewish couple, they got into a whole argument, you know. She said, and he said, and he said, and she said, and he said, and he said. And she started to give him a piece of her mind. She was chastising him and screaming at him and rebuking. In the middle, she got so upset. She got so fired up. She stood up and she came close to her husband, screaming at him. And with his hand, he gave her a little push. He gave her a little push, unfortunately. And she slipped and fell on the fence, on the on the gedder, on the fence of the of the of the balcony. And apparently it was weak and it broke, and she fell down. From the second floor, she fell down to the ground of the first floor, and he saw this. And it was obviously a mistake and an accident, and he ran down. And she was there, lifeless, lifeless, so it seemed. And he started to scream and scream, and and they started to scream for a doctor, a doctor. And he ran to the Alter Rebbe, he ran to the Balatanya, he ran to his room, he knew where he was staying, and he told the Rebbe what happened. They got into an argument, and he gave her a little push, and she slipped, and the fence was weak, and she fell down, and she's there, and she's she's numb, she's lifeless, she's not moving. She doesn't want to get up. So the Balhatanya stood up, he had a stick, he came over, he stood by this woman, by Rabbi Yitzchak's wife, and the story goes that he said these words in Yiddish, and I'm going to quote, Machzich nishnadish, setreftzich as metzavertelzich metaman, shteyuf ungein shtubarain. I think I once read that her name was Chaya. I think so. For some reason, that's my memory. And he said, Chayala, mach sich nishnarish. Es treft sich as metzerveltelt sich mit aman. Steyo von geyen Which means, Chayala. Don't be petty. Don't behave like a fool. Sometimes we get in to a fight, to a word argument. You get into a word, verbal fight with your husband. It's nothing. Stand up and come back home. And Chayala, Rabbi Zelva's wife, stood up and she went back home as though nothing happened. Now, you'll choose how to interpret the story. I'm not here to do that. But I'm here to discuss the holy words of the Balatanya. Chayala. We have to have perspective. And this is where it is so important to develop perspective, especially nowadays. And that is, normal arguments with words are common. This is what happens. We have different opinions, different experiences, different perspectives. The question is, how do you continue contextualize it do you see it part of a story of strife or do you see it as part of a story of love and I want to clarify what I'm going to say by an insight of another tzaddik who once said 
What's the difference between a rich you're gonna you're gonna like this in Mexico? What's the difference between a rich man and a poor man? What's the difference? So you'll say, well, a rich guy has money and a poor guy doesn't have money, but you know that's not always true. Very often there are rich people who don't have money now. They don't have cash. They don't have liquid. Their money is invested. They have a huge lawsuit. They're in debt. They don't always have, maybe they have some money, but they don't always have money. And sometimes there's poor people who have a good day. You have fundraisers or schnorrers or other poor people, and sometimes they make in one day quite a a nice amount of money, and they have money today. Yet he's called rich and he's called poor. Why? So one of the great rabbis, the Rashab, once said as follows. He said, it's not about if you have money or you don't have money. It's how you look at yourselves, at yourself. It's the general perspective, how you view yourself. A rich man says to himself, I'm a rich person. I'm a wealthy person. I, there's somebody suing you in court for $20 million. I, you owe the bank $35 million. I, you took a loan for another $3 million. Okay, I have to deal with it. But I'm a rich man. I have connections. I have good standing. I have a great reputation. I'm a rich man. I'm a person who's rich. Right now, I need a loan. I need to deal with this headache. I need to deal with this headache. A poor man, he looks at himself generally. I am a pauper. I today, I happen to have money. Today was a good day. Somebody gave me a wonderful check for $5,000. Today, I have money in the bank. But who am I? I'm a poor person. It happens to be that today I have money. This is true in life as well. There's two perspectives in life. One perspective on life is I'm a poor person. I'm a traumatized person. I'm a problem case. I'm hopeless. I'm depressed. I'm a loser. I'm confused. I don't have a good marriage. I can't have a good relationship with my kids. I can't have a good relationship with God. I can't have a good relationship with myself. Today, I happen to have money. It's a good day. Okay. But who am I? I'm a poor person. This is what the Yetzirah wants you to know about yourself. There's another approach in life. And the other approach in life is, no, I'm a rich person. I'm a great person. I'm a splendid person. My soul is a chilek imal mamish. My soul is a piece of Hashem. I am a manifestation of God in this world. I am a divine ambassador of love, of light, of hope, of wholesomeness, of healing, of redemption. There is greatness wherever you touch me. There is greatness. Today, yeah, I have a lawsuit. I'm in debt. I have to fix something. I have to fix a few things. I have to say, I'm sorry. I made a mistake. I need to do tshuva. But who am I? I'm a wonderful person. I'm one with God. I am a piece of sanctity. I am shluchoy shel adam kemoisai. I'm a shliach. I am an ambassador of the rebbeinu shalolim in this world. I represent Hashem in this world. And therefore, at my core, I have all the confidence and all the strength and all the resilience and all the happiness and all the beauty that I need. Does it mean that there's no dirt in me? Of course there's dirt in me. Does it mean I don't have to make mistakes? Does it mean I don't have bad moments? Does it mean I don't make do transgressions? Does it mean that I don't have to make mends? Does it mean that I don't have confl- conflicts? Of course I have conflicts. Rich people don't have conflicts. Rich people don't have lawsuits. Rich people don't have debt. But I'm rich. I'm a rich person. It's about perspective, who you are. And the same is true in marriage. You could have two types of marriages. One marriage is, by definition, this is a miserable marriage. And every time there's an argument, it just confirms, you see, I can't trust him, I can't trust her, I can't trust him, I can't trust her. 
You decided already 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, three years ago, that this is a bad marriage, and you keep on confirming your negative prophecy and becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Every time he says something or she says something that doesn't fit your imagination of what you would like to hear right away, you see, I knew I can't trust this person. We have to change our perspective. The perspective has to be, you are rich. You have a great marriage. You're both wonderful people. There's so much good in you. There's so much good in him. There's so much good in her. There's so much beauty. There's so much potential. There's so much love. There's so much warmth. There's so much affection. What does the Balatanya say? Of course there's conflict. Of course there's arguments. Of course there's different perspectives. But put it in the context of richness. Put it in the context of trust. We have to learn that we could trust each other. Tell me that you could trust me. I want to be able to trust you. Within that context, we can deal with conflict. We can deal with disagreements because we can give each other the benefit of the doubt. Instead of it saying, oh, I don't have money today. It means I'm poor. No, I don't have money today. And we have to deal with that. But we are rich. We are rich in spirit. The Gemara says, in the Darim, ain ani elabideya. Poverty and richness is a mindset. It's a form of consciousness. Richness, it's good to have money in your bank account. Don't get me wrong. Everybody should have a lot, a lot of money in their bank account. But it's critical to cultivate also richness in mindset and poverty in mindset. Okay, my dearest, dearest friends, there's so much to say, but I think my time is up. I already spoke, I think, for close to an hour. So let's go to the questions and answers. So here on chat, people have been asking questions. People have been asking questions here on chat in Spanish. And I will begin to address the questions. And yes. So uh, the work I was doing before, um, in the meantime of of the lecture, so I was looking about the questions, the more, the more important um, questions that people have. And if you allow to me, there is a few important questions that people want to know. Your advice. Please. Your approach. Please go ahead. So somebody wrote that, uh, she, she feels that her husband, she's, he's very involved. Um, helping all type of institutions here in Mexico. And he's all day long in Zoom meetings, trying to help all kinds of institutions. But he's a little bit like out of the importance of the family. So he's not, um, he's not so involved in the, and the family values, and he's more like outside trying to help everybody. What's your approach about that? Well, is he here with us? Is he? <laughs> is she asking for him, or he also cares about it? <laughs> so I don't know who is the question of, because it's somebody anonymous, but that that was one of the, the right. questions they asked. Okay, well, it's it's hard to answer because we have to hear what he has to say, but generally, it's very, very important for all of us who are involved in community affairs and helping people, as the Navi says, 
What Yenava Yeshaya says, Kisira Arum When you see a person who's naked, give him clothes. And when you see a person who's hungry, give him food. And when you see a person who's thirsty, give him a drink. altis alem. But don't run away from your own flesh. And part of what that means is, many of us are leaders. We are heroes to the world. It's great. But be a hero to your own family, to your own wife and children, or to your own husband and children. And let's face it. And trust me, I have a little experience with this. <laughs> it's very easy to be a hero by the world. It's much harder to be a hero for your own children. You know why? Because they know you much better, right? Take a person like myself, if I want to be honest and vulnerable. Till Corona, I traveled the world and I traveled extensively. And I come to a place like Mexico City or Melbourne, Australia or Johannesburg or Cape Town or Los Angeles or Brazil. And I give my speech. And I get a wonderful round of applause, and it's beautiful. I was there one night for two hours. They enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, and I go home. Wonderful. But home, that's where real life is happening. That's where you're raising your own children. That's where you're building your deepest and greatest future. So it's so important not to get involved in the community and neglect your loved ones. Many of us do it, and it's a tragic mistake. Some of us do it because it's it's hard at home, so we use our community leadership as a distraction. But some of us do it actually for good reasons. We are idealistic. We want to help people, and we don't realize that our boys and our girls and our spouses really, really need us. So that's why I say to all of you, help people as much as possible. But remember, the first people you're responsible to is the one you're married to and your children. You must spend time with them. You need to bond with them. You need to listen with them. Because if not, God forbid, when they get older, you may be experiencing so many challenges because of a lack of a relationship that all of your communal involvement you will see was not worth it. Because today, especially, children need dedicated and caring parents. And the most important thing is emotional connection with parents. You need to be emotionally connected with each one of your children to the best of your ability. And that's why I say to all of you, to this person asking the question and to everybody else, help people and be there for people, but do not neglect your family. And if you have to make compromises and figure it out, figure it out. But this is extremely important. Okay. Another important question we got it's somebody who wrote me in private, but he said that he's very far away from God and he, he knows that this is a very important message of God, but he don't know how to start. From where do you, it's your advice to start to get close to the sky because he's very far away. He knows this is a message of God Excellent, excellent question. Excellent. Beautiful question. So, my dearest friend, what I would suggest, what I would suggest as a first step, first of all, I'm so proud of you for asking such an important question during uh, such an important time. And it's really great that you're focusing on this. 
fortunate are you that you're utilizing this moment to discover a deeper part of yourself. I'm going to suggest a few steps to begin with. I assume this is a man or a woman, do we know? Isaac, a man or a woman? It's a man. A man. Okay, so here's a few steps that I would suggest. The first thing is to do something very practical every day, and that is to try to put on tefillin. If you need to get a pair of tefillin, you can get in touch with Rabbi Isaac or with me, and we can help you. But every day for a few minutes, to wrap tefillin in the morning and say a prayer to God. And it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be prescribed by anybody. Speak from your heart. God understands all languages. It could be for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. You can use a siddur, a prayer book with the language that you understand. You could do that. But in addition to that, or besides that, pray from your heart. Speak to God. Tell him this. Tell God that you know this is an opportunity to come close, but you don't know how to get close. This itself is a very meaningful relationship because this is how a relationship begins. When you could say, I want to be close to you, but I don't know how to be close. So I would suggest to try to do this every weekday morning for a few minutes to put on tefillin and say a prayer. Till you get the tefillin, you could do the prayer without the tefillin. That's number one. Number two, to give charity every day. To give tzedakah every day. It could be a few coins, a little amount, a bigger amount, but every day to give charity to somebody in need. And, and this is a suggestion to everybody, by the way, give every day, give one lonely person a call, an aunt, an uncle, an old friend, a person you used to work with, a classmate you haven't spoken to in 10 years, the guard at the door, the person in the grocery shop, in the shop, a great uncle, a brother-in-law, a second cousin, every day, a senior citizen, even a stranger, call somebody up and reach out to them. This is how we emulate and become agents of God's compassion in the world. My last suggestion to you is, and a very, very important suggestion is, to build a relationship with God, we have to start getting to know God's perspective. How do we get to know God's perspective? Through learning Torah. Every day, take 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, as much time as you have, and start learning Torah. What should you learn? Here is a few options. You'll know what speaks to you most. Either you can take a book of Judaism, a book of Torah, and start learning, or if there is a teacher that you love to listen to or you cherish, go online and listen to a class every day. Maybe you could do one class over a few days, 20 minutes a day. For example, if you're enjoying my lecture, I have a few thousand classes online. You can go on to the yeshiva.net or any other rabbi or rabbitson who you enjoy and listen every day, learn a little Torah from inside, from outside. As you start learning, you internalize more and more God's perspective on life, God's uh, expectations from us in life, God's love to us in life, who we are as people, who we are as Jews. And already in a few weeks, you will find yourself growing in so many ways. And I wish you a lot of success in this amazing, beautiful journey with love and Hatzlacha. Another question, Rabbi, is somebody is asking that their children are feeling that, that like they're on vacation. They're what? So they're, they're on vacation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so how to deal with them? that you should understand that they're not on vacation. <laughs> okay. 
I don't know the details, but it's not such a terrible thing. Maybe you should also start feeling you're on vacation. It, it doesn't have to be a time of stress now. Your children are feeling they're on vacation. You know why? Because they do have a little vacation. Let's face it. Nobody is running to school. Everyone has more time. Classes are a little different, right? You get to leave class when you want. Um, uh, I have some teenagers here in my house, right? And I heard one of them saying, I'm ditching class today. And uh, things are a little different. Things are more relaxed. Instead of convincing your children that it's not vacation, I would do something else. Try to make this time special for your children. Make it meaningful. Do you know that there are many children now who are learning better than they learned in school. You know why? They could read a lot of books that they couldn't read in school. Sometimes they're pursuing uh, things and projects that they didn't have time to pursue in school. So turn the vacation into a time of growth. Let it be learning with a different energy, with a flavor of relaxation. That's what I would say. Of course, you want to encourage them to show up to school on time and be responsible to school for schoolwork, but nothing wrong with a little experience a vacation in a good way. That's my opinion. That's my opinion. Okay, another interesting question that came up is that everybody knows that this time is going to pass away. We're going to be behind it. So what's your advice or what do you think about how to keep some impress and improve it in our lives after all these prices happen. Excellent, excellent. How do we maintain some things that we learned? And the answer is, you have to take some of the new discoveries that you had and make them a permanent part of your life. Maybe it means that from now, yeah, you're going to spend some extra time with your spouse every single day without your phone. Maybe it means that your davening is going to be a little different that your learning is going to be a little different. Maybe it means that every single day you're going to make sure to spend special time with your children and put it in your calendar. Maybe it means, and this is more general, that you're going to learn to speak differently to people. For example, I'll give you a simple example. There are people now who are feeling closer to the world. You know, when you're in a crisis together, you feel closer to people and you're less smug and arrogant. So there are people today walking in the street and they say hi to everybody with such warmth. Maybe it's going to be that when you go to the store and you see somebody cleaning and mopping, instead of just walking by, you're going to acknowledge them and thank them. Maybe it's when the kids go back to school, the janitor is going to be thanked and appreciated. These are habits that we create in our lives to make the world a much more spiritual and kind place. I would say, take a few things that you're learning now and make them concrete in your daily life. And don't forget, don't become arrogant when this is over. Remember that the whole physical structure of the world, as powerful as it looks, is really hevel havolim. You know the song, right? Everything is vanity. There's nothing outside of Hashem. So it's always hard to talk about this. Really? Come on. Come on. Look at 
politics, look at the arts, look at money, look at Wall Street, look at power. And comes a little coronavirus that nobody could see and brings the whole world to its knees. And suddenly you see that there's only one reality in the world, one real reality in the world, and that's Hashem. There's one reality in your life, and that's your own internal connection with God. And if you can discover that now and live with that, the world will be a much more redeemed place when we emerge from this. Okay, the same person, Rabbi, that asked how to deal with uh, the children that they think that they're in vacation. So that person has asked me that it's not only because of vacation, but also that they're playing electronics all day long. Okay, playing electronics all day long is not a good idea. So you have to, in a kind and respectful and loving but firm way, you have to create structures for the benefit of the children. There's something called gaming addiction. There's something called screen addiction. It's very, very important to have limits because when you're on games all day, you can't think. There's no normal social interactions and social communication. You stay up all night and you wake up late. It's simply not good for the brain. So yes, we all want entertainment and we all want fun. So it's important to make times and explain to them. It shouldn't be done out of anger and impulse and screaming. No, create structures in the house. Maybe after a certain hour, they have to give in their screens or after a certain hour, the internet goes down or after a certain hour, they have to shut it off and put it away somewhere. Create structures that are normal, that are balanced, that are fear to the children so that they should be able to be more successful and they will be thankful to you. Because remember... Children often have a temptation, right? I want this lollipop and I want another lollipop, another lollipop, another lollipop. But when you say no, you're doing me a favor because even though I'm going to cry right now, but deep down, I want to be a responsible person. Deep down, everybody wants to succeed. Our teenagers want to succeed and they need our their parents to be able to step into their life and in a loving, rational, balanced and caring way, create structures that are good for them. Not structures that make them feel that they are, you know, being monitored every single moment and they're not allowed to express themselves. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about structures that help bring out the best in them. Entertainment is great, but like everything in the world, it needs limits. Food is great, but if I don't stop eating, it's really not good for me. A game, if I don't stop playing one game, another game, another game, another game, it's really, really not good. We have to get out. We have to exercise. We have to communicate with people. It's simply much better. So it's important to create these structures with kindness and sechel, with wisdom. Don't be right. Be smart. You know the difference? In life, it's more important to be wise than to be than to be right. Al tiyet sodek, chacham. That's the expression. Okay, there is another interesting question. Somebody is asking, um, what, what's your opinion when we come in contact with people that they don't have responsibility about the quarantine? So here in Mexico, we're experiencing a lot of like people that they're coming in contact with some people that they're not in quarantine. So what's your advice with them? Wow. Uh, 
My advice is that it's extremely important to educate everybody that you can educate about the seriousness of this. The fact is that 99.9% of rabbis and 100% of doctors the world over have cautioned and warned that quarantine saves lives. And even though some people say, oh, this doctor has an agenda and this president has an agenda and this doctor has an agenda, look at Israel. Look at Israel. They certainly care for their people. There's a lot of good doctors there, and they care for their people. Look what they did. Learn from Israel. The politics that we have here is not Israeli politics. Over here, the Republicans and Democrats and Trump and anti-Trump and this doctor and that doctor. But look at Israel. And Israel was defined as the safest country now. They went on lockdown first. They shut everything down. They quarantined people over Pesach. There were days where stores weren't open, even grocery stores. They used the holiday of Pesach to be able to enforce an absolute quarantine. And the results were incredible, Baruch Hashem. So it's so important to explain to people, we are the nation that gave the world the gift of a haftalerech We are the nation that taught the world about quarantine. 2,000 years ago, when it was unheard of, the Gemara and Baba Kama, and it's brought in Halacha, discussed that when there's a pandemic, you must go into quarantine so that you shouldn't get infected and not infect others. We know the fact that this pandemic travels so fast and that it's extremely contagious and that there's a certain percentage of people who get very ill or who die from it. How can people whose lives are dedicated to caring for other people. We are the nation that taught the world that saving one life is saving the world and destroying one life is destroying the world. How can it be that our people are being so callous and insensitive in such a crisis? And even if you think there are errors, better to err on the side of caution. Even if it's a suffolk and suffolk and speck, speck and maybe, 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 maybe. Let's understand this. When people go to a minion or people go to a bar mitzvah or people go have dinner together or people go to a supermarket and they mingle together. If one person has the virus, he may have the virus but not have any symptoms. He's young and healthy and fresh and vibrant. Many people have the virus, they don't have the symptoms. And he puts it on a piece of food because it stays on a piece of food and that piece of food gets delivered that night to a 70-year-old man and his life is in danger. The more we mingle, the more it spreads and spreads and spreads. And look at the communities where they were not quarantined. How many funerals were there? How many funerals? So we must educate and enlighten people and explain this to people in kind but very firm and non-negotiable words. This is absolutely irresponsible. It is such a lack of sensitivity and literally a cause of spilling blood, of murder. How can people be so insensitive to this? And we have to stand up to such callousness and to such insensitivity and to such denial of reality and facts. Every doctor in the world and every doctor in Israel is wrong, and you're the only one who's right because you have to go to a minion, because you have to go to the mikveh, because you have to go to a mitzvah, because you want to be social. That's my opinion. Sorry for not be sorry for not being too diplomatic. 
I have one more question, Rabbi. Okay. Uh, somebody is asking that how to deal with our children with the fact that they're, they're scared about all what's happening. They get up at night and they're dreaming about death and virus and they don't know how to deal with it. So what's your advice how to deal with our children about what's happening in the world? Excellent, excellent question. How do we assuage the fear of our children? They get up at night or they can't fall asleep at night. And the answer to that is this is where it's so important to try to meditate with your children and maybe exercise with your children or do exercises that can calm them down. One important thing is to listen to the fears of your children and to be able to talk to them. Maybe do breathing sessions together where you could breathe in and breathe out slowly and they can imagine the color pink encompassing them. Help your children think about the fact that Hashem loves them infinitely and unconditionally and holds their hands and takes care of every single one of us and every single human being every moment of our lives. Every single moment of life is a miracle, is a divine miracle. 50 trillion cells, 50 trillion cells, maybe 100 trillion cells, according to some. Each have to function in an incredibly complex and intricate way to allow one living organism, one body to be healthy. And that's the divine energy guiding every single life, every single person, every single organism, and every single single aspect of our creation. Hashem loves you. He wants your best. He takes care of you. He protects you. Speak about this with your children. Meditate on it together. Do relaxing things together. When they go to sleep, it may be important for you to lay with them a little bit to speak about these things, to share with them heartwarming stories. I will suggest something else. Every single Sunday, 4 o'clock New York time, I do a special children's program. We have already done eight programs in the last eight weeks with children. And part of my program is doing meditations with the children to be able to help them relax. So you could come every Sunday, 4 o'clock New York time, on the yeshiva.net and... Maybe your children could benefit a lot from that program. But try during the day to help your children process these emotions by calming them down and explaining to them that there is no reason to fear. Yes, we're going through a challenging time, but we are in the hands of Hashem who loves us in the most incredible and powerful way. Also look in maybe to different vitamins or nutrients, or diets that can help your child. Speak to people in your community who are experts in this area, because there may be a supplement or a vitamin that your child can have, maybe for sleeping or during the day or during the night, that can help them also in this area. Another important thing is, it's good if you didn't do it in the last 12 months, it's good to check the mezuzahs in your home. The mezuzahs, as the commentators say, are very powerful, protective measure. If you didn't do it in the last 12 months, make sure it's a good idea to have the mezuzahs 
uh, checked in the house. Another thing is in every bedroom of each of the children, put a chumash, a siddur, and a tzedakah box. It should be the child's chumash and the siddur and the tzedakah box. And explain to him what it is, and it should be his or hers, whether it's a girl or a boy, or both of them can have theirs if they're sharing a room. These are some suggestions that I would uh, share with you. There's a few questions, Rabbi Isaac, a few questions that came in through the yeshiva.net. Do you mind? They were good questions. Do you mind if I go through them? No, please, please. Okay. So people asked questions on the yeshiva.net, so I'll just go through them. Okay. When a teenager is dealing with a sick parent, and I am her friend, how can I help her now if I can't pull her out of her house because of quarantine, and my close friend, she's a teenager, has a sick parent? Excellent question. And the most important thing is to be here for her in any way possible. What that means is... Maybe you can help with shopping. So deliver food to the house. That would, I'm sure, be a major help. Call her, reach out to her, FaceTime her, uh, text her, message her, call her on the phone, Zoom, whatever the technology you use. But just be a support for her. Tell her that you want to be here for her. You're thinking about her. You're davening for her and you're davening for her parents. Let her know that she could lean on you. And she'll already... Deal with it in the best way that she needs. One day she'll be more talkative. One day she'll be less talkative. One day she'll be in the mood of talking to you. One day not. But don't worry about it. Don't take it personal. You reach out to her in the morning and in the evening every day and tell her that you love her. You're here for her. You want to be there for her. If you can help in any way, maybe by delivering food or helping in any other form or fashion, just be present in her life. That's the best thing that you can do. Is there a message we should transmit to our children about this present situation? Yes, there's a very important message. And that is, our children are the future tomorrow of the world. Our future, our children represent the future. The world is now going through a change. This is a very, very important change. And our children are the ones who need to be at the forefront of this transformation. And this is the message you want to bring to your children. The world is now becoming a more refined place, a more caring place, a more loving place, a place where people are becoming more in tune with their natural and innate, kinder selves. This is a very, very special moment. This is a time to be able to discover your inner spirituality, your inner soul, your inner core. Or to put it in other words, this is a time that the world is preparing to cultivate a consciousness of Gula rather than a consciousness of Gullus. The consciousness of Gullus is we are all alone, selfish, greedy, not trusting. A consciousness of Gula is we are all one. We are all part of infinity. We are all a manifestation of infinity in this world. We are ambassadors of love. Light, hope, healing, and redemption. That is who I am. That is who you are. That is who each of our children are. That is the person you want to identify with when you wake up in the morning and when you go to sleep at night and during the day. Who do you want to identify with? You want to identify with the person in you which sees herself or himself as a divine ambassador of love, light, and hope. If a... Yeah. Just uh, before you continue, yeah, I only want to thank Isaac Seaton for all his effort and the sponsors in Mexico 
prolonged us through this. And we're very excited to announce future events with you and with uh, more um, speakers and international. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Should I continue? Should I continue? Okay, and I want to thank all the sponsors, and I want to thank the whole community of Mexico City, and I want to bless all of you that you should go from strength to strength and continue building yourselves as a community, as an individual, the Jewish community of Mexico City in all of its rainbow colors and the entire gamut and spectrum of uh, this very fascinating and beautiful and loving and warm community. So chazak ve'amatz. Let me thank, thank you. Thank you for the privilege and thank you for the schus. Yeah. If a soul has multiple physical bodies in which it appeared in this world, my question is, take a father whose father died, mom remarries, and they have a new family together. When Mashiach comes, which father will the original family have? Will their father who died young get up physically and be reunited with his kids? What about his wife who now has a new husband? Excellent question. And my answer, my answer to you is, let me assure you one thing. And that is when Mashiach comes, everybody is going to be as happy as can be. Everybody will feel that they are exactly where their neshama has to be. They are in the relationships where they have to be. They are married and connected to the people they have to be connected to in a way that everybody is the most fulfilled. So the exact way how it's going to work out, we're going to leave up to God and Mashiach Tzitkenu. But one thing, you don't have to be afraid that every relationship and marriage is going to reach its ultimate fruition so that every soulmate will be connected to the person it has to be, that he or she has to be connected to. I love bar mitzvahs. I love to dance. I love to make people happy. Now we are home. How can I make people happy? I know I can call friends, uncles, aunts, bubbies, zadies, but is there any other way to make people happy? Also, can you please say a joke? <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. So the answer is every, every generation has its unique opportunity. Every time has its unique opportunity. There are times Hashem wants you to go to a bar mitzvah. There's times Hashem doesn't want you to go to bar mitzvah. You could dance in your home. You can dance with your brothers and sisters. You can dance with your parents. You can call people on the phone and sing a beautiful song to them. You can upload a video of you singing and send it out to your friends and community members. Remember, there are so many ways to make people happy. If you just call a few people a day and sing a song to senior citizens, sing a song to them, you will make their day. Question, how to deal with mikvah and couples purity during coronavirus? Okay, many of the mikvahs were not closed, but they are following very, very strict guidelines. Only one person comes at a time. After every person, they disinfect the mikvah. People maintain the proper distance. So you have to find out what are the guidelines in your community and follow it. And if necessary, call two competent doctors who are experts in this area and consult what you should do in your particular situation. But obviously, we want to maintain marital life in the best 
way possible, especially now. What can... Rabbi, somebody is asking yeah. that they think that this is something that we have to live like the Shoah. So something very big and very big catastrophe is going to happen. How to deal with such emotions? And, we, and, <laughs> and where do they want to leave to? No, they know they have to be where they are, but if you think it's like something that they have to accept and it's something very bad that's going to happen. I, I, <laughs> why do you have to have such a catastrophic mindset? The great sages used to say, Tracht gut, but sein gut. Think positive. What does it help you to be in a negative mindset? Negative mindsets come from the Yetzirah. If there's something practically you have to do, we have to do it. Hashem says to listen to doctors. We have to take care of our health. We have to protect our families. If there's something you have to do physically, make sure you do it. But in terms of your spirit and your mindset, this is not a time to get depressed and into a catastrophic mindset. You have to do what you have to do. You have to protect yourself. You have to protect your family. If there's something you know you needed to do, you need to do to secure your health and your loved one's health, of course do it. But in terms of a mindset, I don't see the benefit of such a mindset. The mindset has to be to remember that Hashem loves you. Hashem is guiding us. Hashem is taking care of us. This doesn't mean we understand everything. There's a lot of things we don't understand. There's a lot of things we can't wrap our brains around. There's a lot of tragedies that are devastating, and they devastate us to our core. And we may never know the reason for all of these things. But our mindset should be one of trust. Our mindset should be one in which we know that God, in His infinite wisdom, and His infinite love to us takes care of us. This is a crisis that has its own meaning and its own purpose. It's certainly beyond me. And our opportunity is now to become leaders. Don't be a victim. Be a leader. Instead of being worried and anxious, wake up every morning and ask not what the world can do for you. Ask what you can do for the world. Can you please... Can you please, I live in a neighborhood where all shuls and all mikvahs are open without social distancing. My wife keeps on asking me, why am I not going to shul like all the people in my neighborhood? How do I deal with it? My wife asks this question in front of my children. Well, I don't know what to tell you, but you're not allowed to go to shul at this time. You're not allowed to mingle with people at this time. It is absolutely immoral and dangerous, and it's the wrong thing to do. It can literally cause the death of other human beings. So that is what your family has to understand. Every moment we are quarantined, we are part of the mitzvah of Hatzalas Nefoshas, of saving people's lives. Obviously, the conversation with your wife should be done in a kind and respectful way. I am a little surprised because women are usually smarter than men, and more practical than men. Okay? my nen- How do I get my nine-year-old boy to sleep at a normal hour? He sleeps whenever he wants. I tried everything, bribes, consequences, conversations. Nothing works. He never sleeps on time. But since Corona, he never goes to sleep on time. 
But since Corona, he sleeps. He goes to sleep only at 11 or 12, even 1 a.m. Okay, first of all, welcome to the club. You're not the only family where kids are going to sleep, uh, where kids are going to sleep late. However, I think the most important thing is speak to him, understand what's going through his mind, create a schedule for him, create a healthy structure. Maybe there's games you could play at night. Maybe he needs to be a little more tired at night. Maybe he could take some melatonin. Maybe he could take some other vitamins. But have a conversation with him in a structure that works for him. I mean, is he getting up for school on time? His, if you go to sleep at 1 a.m., it's very hard to get up on time. So my point is, I don't know how your home works, but it's important to have a conversation with him and come to a uh, realization, help him come to the realization that there's something wrong. But it could be you have to listen to him. Maybe he's scared. Maybe there's something bothering him. Maybe you have to spend more time with him in the bedroom. Maybe there's something eating up at him, and that's why he's not falling asleep. So you have to make sure that that is being dealt with. Okay, my dearest friends, my dearest friends, I see. I I think it's uh yeah. wow, it's late. Okay, I think we're that ah, huh? done from here. Yeah. Okay, excellent. So I want to I want to send my love and blessings to all of you, all of you in Mexico City. Thank you so so much for joining us. It's been a great honor and a great privilege and very meaningful. And I want to bless you to go from strength to strength. And utilize this time really for tremendous growth. This is a time where you could reveal your deepest strength and leadership qualities. And I really bless and hope that every one of us utilizes this time to discover a deeper dimension in ourselves and in our loved ones so that we can emerge from this much more blessed and much more wise and much more enlightened and much kinder and much purer and much more sacred and much more true to ourselves, so that together we can usher in a new dawn of redemption. Stay healthy, stay healthy, and be blessed. Thank you very much. I love you all. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you for everything. Thank you, Isaac, for everything, and thank you. For and thank you, and thank you, and thank you for bringing us together. <laughs> thank you, Rabbi. We miss you, and hopefully we should have you back here in Mexico for a Shabbaton. Amen. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.